This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Annette Verpillo. Now, Annette is an osteopath and also the founder of Posture Pro. So we discuss a host of topics from functional orthodontics, postural recalibration, the relationship between the feet, the eyes, the jaw, and chronic pain, mental health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 650 episodes for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Annette Verpillo. Enjoy. Annette, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So where on planet Earth are we finding you on this fine afternoon? Montreal, Canada. Beautiful. Quebec. A beautiful place. I've been there many times. Yes, it is, uh, it is beautiful, aside from the fact that it's very cold, as we've already discussed most of the year, but it's, uh, it's a great place to be. Absolutely. Yeah, I used to work in upstate New York, so we'd go to Montreal on our days off sometimes. And I love the fact that you cross over the American border, all of a sudden the signs are in French, the distances are in kilometers, and the French toast is way more gooey. As, as is our uh, French fries, I believe, with our famous poutine. <laughs> all right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I'm born in uh, Montreal, Canada. I uh, actually have both nationalities. I'm uh, French from France and I have uh, the Canadian nationality. And uh, I come from a family of, of neurosurgeons and just uh, uh, from my uh, father's side, which were very much passionate about the role of the brain and how the brain functions, which I'm going to have to believe has led me somehow towards the journey that I'm presently in. Um, and that is simply I have a... Um, a rehab background, but I've uh, dedicated um, most of my career through to uh, more specifically understanding the role of posture and just everyday life and global health and in global wellness and um, making links specifically between posture and most common problems that we see now in the 21st century, anything ranger, ranging from chronic pain to um, yeah, cognitive issues and to just recently with the state of Massachusetts, um, shooting accuracy, blood pressure, um, and uh, being able to improve overall uh, performance with, uh, with police officers. So with a family of neurosurgeons, before we get into your work specifically, what have they seen as far as the evolution of their profession? Because from my very layman 
um, perspective that I have. You know, I've watched sleep medicine really start to permeate in a lot of the wellness conversations. I've watched a deeper understanding into TBIs and concussion and that kind of thing. So what has been their journey from the generation that they were initially taught to where they are today? Wow. Well, as you know, it's, I mean, neuroscience is, is a branch of, of, uh, is a, a branch of medicine that is constantly evolving. So we're talking back in the 1980s. I'm pretty sure that what we know today was not known to the extent that we know today back then. Uh, But what my uncle did say to me is that everything begins in the brain, which was actually a crucial element for me at the time when I was faced in my rehab practice and I was trying to get the results that I was told I should be able to get with my clients simply because I was doing what I was taught. I uh, graduated in school and I was absolutely convinced that I could help. And at that point, I realized that the results that I was providing were temporary. And um, that created a big problem, a conflict in my head because I was here, I was being paid for my professional advice and I was unable to deliver the results that were expected from me. And uh, that sentence, my my uncle at the time had passed, but that sentence had resonated with me all along as as I was younger from the age of, as far as I can remember, seven years old. (laughs) He always said to me, everything starts with the brain. He actually wrote a book uh, about the brain um, uh, back then, which unfortunately Amazon, I don't believe Amazon was was online at the time, but, uh, or maybe they were in 1980, I don't know. Uh, but he was basically trying to decorticate all of the different lobes of the brain and how they relate to overall health. So what about as far as you as a child, you know, what, what sports were you playing and what was the, the parenting philosophy? I know we're going to talk about, you know, developmental uh, principles, but what were you exposed to personally? So I was exposed to injury, just basic injury, as do every single athlete um, in the world, I I think it'd be fair to say. And um, I was very athletic right from the get-go. My specialty was the 100 meters. I believe that I, uh, at the time, was running the the 100 meters was uh, close to 12 or 13 seconds, which I remember having a lineup of coaches uh, knocking at my door. And here I was on my way to the... Uh, the Games of Quebec at the time, it was what, what it was called to eventually hopefully make it to the Olympics, which is, you know, everybody, every, every child's uh, dream come true. That's it. That's in athletics. And my father just stopped everything. He said, um, what he said to me is, unfortunately, we're, we're not going to go down that, that road. And I remember crying and being shattered and why. And his answer was quite simple. He says, well, by the age of 35, your body will be ruined. And uh, I never really understood what that meant. I had a little bit of resentment uh, towards that. But um, it's it's funny how life turns out. You you kind of understand where everything just comes together. And I I now understand why he said what he said is, I mean, the the profession that will, um, or I should say the sport that will resonate with with injuries the most are probably with athletes, Any, any sport really. From the moment that you're using your body, if there is an imbalance in your nervous system, which is where my uncle comes in, that this imbalance in the left brain and the right brain creates imbalances in the body, left side of the body, right side of the body, front and back. And um, at the time, no one really knew. No one really knew. Now, keep in mind, at the time I was eight years old uh, when I was um, uh, constantly competing to uh, to be accepted in, in those different uh, uh, in those different sports. Um, but no one really knew about the role of the brain with uh, with performance. 
So again, as you're being raised in this very brain-focused family dynamic, um, what is your career aspiration when you're in the kind of high school level? Are you thinking about that already? I'm actually not. I'm, uh, I'm actually focusing on business administration at Concordia uh, University. And, uh, and then I have a switch of career because still I've remained athletic throughout my entire teenagehood. And um, one thing led to another. I just ended up being, um, I just ended up uh, injuring myself, uh, very simply put, which led me to go and follow some physiotherapy treatment for uh, over a period of an entire year. This was a right shoulder pain, a bursitis that was confirmed through uh, ultrasound. And it was literally a one-year treatment, which um, led me to enroll in a, in a certification in the United States and Chicago, actually, to learn a rehab, which at the time, of course, there was no help for this. And, uh, and then this led me to further take my studies here in, in osteopathy in, in Montreal, where I wanted to now officially open a clinic. And I knew for sure that I wanted to uh, be in the rehab world all, all while continuing to train and, and staying fit. It's around that time that I, when I opened up the clinic at first, where I have came across some, some of my very first clients where I had that famous experience, which I speak of in my Ted talk when um when I was uh, basically just trying to um, to create those those changes through through a brain based approach, which which before that I had realized that just working on rehab was actually not going to create the sustainable changes that I was uh, really looking for in my career. So, what were the the principles and philosophies that you were raised um, with up to that point? And let's let's discuss that moment. You know, what were you trying to fix? What were the failures that you were having? And what was that aha moment that, that happened after that one in, um, interaction with that patient? Yeah, so when I come to think about it, um, I think that every therapist will agree that we are all taught to look at a, program, a problem from a local perspective. And uh, again, it's not that looking at that perspective is wrong. It's just that it's very incomplete. It doesn't take in consideration how the movement of that joint is actually controlled by the nervous system. So um, a staggering moment for me was when I was applying those concepts in clinic and I was dealing specifically with shoulder pain. And it was a lady who said to me, well, how many more sessions will I need? And why isn't this problem getting resolved? Like I knew, I knew that I was providing results and to be honest, I, I never really knew how long those results would last, but I did know that this would be a, um, I don't want to say kind of like an installment, but that you kind of see the clients over and over and over and over again for an extended period of time until they eventually, I think we'd all agree, go and seek help somewhere else if you can't actually resolve the problem. But what struck me was when, uh, when, she, when she asked that question, I went back to my teacher and I said, what am I missing? And his response to me was, we don't really care. Just treat the joint and look at range of motion the way that we taught you in class. And that was the uha moment for me where I was like, well, I can't, I can't possibly uh, live with that answer and um, get paid for my work and expect to be a serious professional. And again, this was just, you know, the, my way of thinking. I'm not implying that, that other trainers or, or uh, rehab specialists out there are not performing well and, or doing their job well. But for me, it was not something that resonated with me. I had to get 
to the deeper cause, to the cause, the root cause of the problem. And I remember, I remember searching um, brain-based approach in, um, when was it? 2004 on Google and there was nothing. It was just a clean slate. I should have taken a screenshot. This is another one of my regrets, which I didn't. But uh, today there are uh, so many, so many therapies and people that are talking about the role of the nervous system just in movement. It's nice to see that it's taken such a trend because it really is the missing link in the 21st century. Well, I think that where I had arrived was if I'm feeling pain in my hand, I need to look way more centrally than, you know, below my wrist. And, and, I, and I kind of understood that. And, you know, some of the impingement that happens at the, the shoulder joint and the spine and, and the neck that can relate to that. And I hear stories through like Eric Goodman, the, the creator of foundation training of all these people that had, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome surgery, had their hands just sliced and diced when the root cause is probably way more you know central to the the spine itself but i until we had our conversation and i want to thank george ryan for connecting us by the way um i had never really gone even deeper and thought well what about the brain itself what about the the innervation of that entire joint from the beginning so i wanted to go from you know from from birth through till you know the elderly in a journey but before we do You've been trained this traditional way in, you know, what would be deemed as a progressive holistic type of medicine, still hitting the same kind of roadblocks, I think, that our regular physicians do with their their pharmaceutical prescription, where there's no kind of end game. Talk to me about unpacking the way you had been trained and how did that lead you to, you know, Posture Pro? Yeah, um, I, I pretty much, uh, I trained myself in, sim- in simple terms. I, there, was, there was no uh, courses out there that would, um, that incorporated the global approach that I, w- that I was seeking. And um, to put this in layman's terms, we know, I mean, we know now in, in neuroscience beyond a shed of a doubt that um, the posture, basically movement results is, is a result from, from the way that we process sensory information. And um, that where the the trick was to be able to figure out which body parts were actually creating those changes in the nervous system. And this is where I kind of created what I refer to as the the posture pro method, which basically takes into consideration the different body parts, if we're talking about an adult, that are going to massively increase the sensory input going into the brain for the purpose, the simple purpose of helping the, the different lobes to better connect with one another to have a massive effect on the primitive brain. But where it becomes interesting is that that primitive brain is is what gets activated at birth when we learn how to move. So the general problem that I came about to understand is that the, the posture that we have today is actually the result of the way that our brain, our brain parts are connecting together and we know beyond the shed of a doubt that if there is an imbalance with posture, I mean, you cannot have pain without having an imbalance in your posture. So there is a direct correlation. Um, So being able to kind of create a a method, a quick system that allows, which, which then again, my goal was really to, how can I teach this to myself, apply it into my practice, which I started doing, but then how can I teach this to other healthcare professionals so that they can start impacting 
uh, their clients and start changing lives from, from anywhere in the world. But for myself personally, when I started applying those concepts, and this is where I talk about my, my first experience with my client in, in the TED Talk was that I, I um, basically, I, lo- I lost all my clients. I had no more follow-ups to come for, for just uh, regular maintenance. And I remember the moment vividly because I was like, oh, my God. I have failed before I even begun uh, in my practice, but uh, Lord and behold, I was um, here. I am still today, and it wasn't the end. If anything, it was just a beautiful journey uh, to go through, uh, which allowed me to meet a lot of a lot of beautiful people that are just helping me, and and yourself included, and Jason Shea and George Ryan and the state of Massachusetts and Charles Poliquin and all of those uh, beautiful beautiful souls that are just helping uh, propel this uh, movement and knowledge forward. Well, you mentioned Charles Poliquin. Before I go any further, talk to me about the relationship with him and how his work has factored into this. Charles, uh, wow. So at the beginning, when I was just basically simply, uh, you know, struggling to, to teach this concept and get the, get the idea, even the idea out that, hey, the brain is controlling movement and everyone thought I was crazy. Uh, I had one of my uh, students, Francine Savard, actually, who uh, basically said to me, um, who said to me, uh, you know, you got to meet this guy. And I'm like, well, okay, sure. And I'm like, what's wrong with him? And she's like, well, he has shoulder pain. So I'm thinking to myself, shoulder pain, piece of cake. Okay, what's the problem? And she said, well, you know, he travels the entire world and the entire world to fix his shoulder issue. I'm like, well, who is he? And I had no idea who he was. And uh, she's like, oh, Charles Poliquin. So I said, great. So we set up the meeting, shows up at my place. And um, uh, I actually have private recordings of this where he was trying to just raise his shoulders and couldn't get above 35, 35 degrees in, in shoulder flexion. So I started applying my concepts, which are really simple. Uh, look at their foot posture. Look at the way that their eyes are tracking. So with Charles, he had both of these problems. Uh, we do look at the jaw, which is something that we get into, but there is a fourth component, which is basically scars. So by working on his foot posture, by working on his eye tracking, I was not able to improve shoulder flexion. So here I am thinking to myself, what am I missing? Calm down. Let's go back to what you know. And what you know is a different body parts. I'm looking at the jaw. There's an issue there. Still no change. And then I say to him, Charles, do you have any scars? And of course, uh, not knowing who he was, I I did not know that he had gone through heart surgery uh, prior to meeting me a couple of years uh, prior to coming over. So he takes his shirt off and I see a huge scar on his upper body. Uh, So what I did, I I just simply treated the scar with essential oils and uh, rubbed it for, um, rubbed it and and kind of uh, played around with it for a good minute. And in the session within Within one minute, he went from 35 degrees to full shoulder flexion. His face dropped, literally dropped. Uh, He was in shock. Of course, I was in shock because everybody was waiting to hear how the the session went. And uh, this is when he gave me the the testimonial, the online testimonial, the very first one that he uh, gave at the time. And it was thanks to Charles that it opened up. He really was the one who opened up the world of athletes and performance and fitness. But what he did say to me at the time, and I value his, I still value today his opinion very much, is he said to me, the world is not ready for this. So this was now 2010. So of course, another moment in my career where I'm completely shattered and I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) The world is not ready for this. I've been 
I've been doing this now and just holding myself for the last uh, six years. And he said, no, the world is, this is way too advanced. And I know that Jason Shea heard about this at the time. And, and, you know, he's, he's uh, explained how this was too overwhelming for him at the time as well. But uh, right before Charles passed, he did say to me, now is the time. And he had made a lot of correlations and we were on a schedule to be on a call uh, so that next time he came to Montreal, he would actually give a, a video testimonial of everything that he had noticed with his athletes. And I think that if that video had gone out, it would have uh, very quickly changed the way that uh, things were being done in the world of fitness. Well, firstly, that's amazing. And it's so you know sad that we lost him. Well, it was a couple of years ago now, I think it was. Um, because, I mean, you talk about, again, a, a, a mad genius in the strength and conditioning world. I mean, he's the nucleus of so many of the, the great men and women out there today. With his specific cardiac scar, was that a case of the, the, the location of it pulling the shoulders towards each other and therefore affecting the posture and therefore creating the pain? Correct. 100%. That, that was exactly, that's exactly it. So just working with regular essential oils uh, can create a release in those sensory, those mechanoreceptors in the skin, which allowed me in that moment to see whether or not they were at the root cause of the uh, decreased range of motion of the shoulder, which was the case. So the solution it was, was is very simple, was obviously treat the scar because we know we have a different uh, immediate impact on the shoulder, but also work on his posture, his feet, his eyes, his jaw, uh, to make sure that the rest of his body is well aligned. Because I mean, the, um, the effects that were probably happening on his posture from just, you know, being pulled forward for years had an effect on his fascial system. So that's something that we had to uh, regress with time. But I do want to mention that some of the last points that Charles did say to me, aside from um, uh, waiting to kind of team up together and meet here so that he can give the video testimonial, as he said to me, you know, Annette, uh, you should consider going or taking this into law enforcement and shooting. And I was like, well, what, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, in my head, it was not something, you know, he's like, this is where you're actually going to have the greatest impact, like screw, you know, fitness and athletes and all that. And for me, that was mind boggling because he was into fitness. That's his world, yeah. <laughs> That's his world. He said, you need to take this into police work, a SWAT team and shooting. If you can just demonstrate that you can improve their shooting accuracy, uh, this is where you're going to have the greatest changes. Well, let's take that as, as the doorway then. So I'd love to get to the shooting after, but first talk to me about, the the impact of literally the eyes and the muscles around the eyes and and how they're working with each other how that factors into your work and then 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 we'll get to the the accuracy with the firearms yeah so in in simple terms uh, the pathway that the pathways that move the eyes in our brain are exactly the same pathways that control the intrinsic muscles of our spine so um, when we talk about looking at the eyes, we're not referring to refraction uh, specifically, we're referring to the muscles, the actual muscles that control the eyeball. And what we find is that I, I want to say nine people out of 10, that's 90% of the people I assess anyways, have a, what I refer to a diverging eye. A diverging eye is when you ask someone to look at a specific target 
in a really close fashion, like just right at the root of your nose. Um, what you're looking for is the deviation of one eyeball. And what that confirms is that in a healthy subject, there is um, an imbalance, conflicting information that is going into the brain, so into the nervous system from one eye in comparison to the other. Now, how can this affect posture or shooting accuracy or movement or range of motion or muscles? Well, it's really simple. Your brain takes in this information, compares the information and tries to superimpose the image to give you depth perception. So if there's conflicting information between your different sensory organs, well, the brain is just going to have to pick one information and make the best out of it at the cost, at the cost of a postural compensation, whether that compensation is from a muscular standpoint or a movement standpoint. Um, so um, we see it all the times with kids. So the idea was to how can we take this knowledge, uh, propel it into law enforcement and improve their shooting accuracy if we know that to focus on a target, you need to have that depth perception and be able to focus with both of your eyes so that you can take that shot. And that shot may very well be a life, a life or death uh, situation. And if you miss the target, well, you know, um, this could be a very unfortunate situation. So I am a very bad shot. <laughs> I'm a very you know, <laughs> white belt shooter anyway, but I struggle and I've got, you know, one eye that was poor. They're slightly different sizes. Um, and I had LASIK on one. And when you hear a, a good shooting instructor talking, they're able to keep both eyes open and maintain that sight picture while looking at that front, you know, that front post and still getting an image of the picture that's kind of blurred behind that. So what are you seeing as far as um, the... The healthy versus unhealthy, or, or the, I guess the 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 balance versus imbalance would be a better description. Um, eyeballs and their ability to maintain that sight picture in the weapon that they're using. So you know, one thing I noticed, and and whether we're talking about just shooting a, a gun or shooting in a in a hoop, uh, the thing is, is that we have an amazing uh, capability as humans, and that capability is that we can adapt almost to to anything. So. Um, there are athletes who make it at the Olympic level and have gold medals and are completely um, have really bad posture. Uh, and there are, I'm, I'm sure, wonderful and amazing snipers out there that can take the most precise shots and, and may have a diverging eye. The point is, is that we adapt. Now, what I'm interested in is what happens after that? What is the type of quality of life that they have? How well are they going to age? How well are they going to live if they are functioning with those dysfunctions. Um, and that's the idea behind it, because if they were able to adapt and become so good at what they do with those imbalances, how, what would it be if we made them that much better without any imbalances as much as we can and have them do what they do best? So it's always going to be about, you know, are you really performing? And this is what Charles mentioned to me um, when, when I said to him, well, what does that mean exactly? He says it means that, that people or athletes are performing at only 85% of their total capability. There's still that 15% that any athlete or, or sniper or shooter can go get just through posture correction. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. It does. And it's funny. Were you talking about um, divergent eyes? My wife is in optometry school as we speak. She's one year into a four-year program. 
she also, has the most hilarious diversions, which is more ironic because she's been in the optical industry for 18 years now. But when she thinks she's crossing her eyes, one is still looking straight. So she looks like a broken Victorian doll from a horror movie. It's hilarious. So, uh, you know, talk to me about the history of that. How is it that so many of our humans have this condition? Is it something that's happening through the environment that we've created in the modern world? Or is it actually genetic? You know, um, there are some studies that should suggest that there may be a genetic gene, uh, but still um, much more studies probably need to be done. But in, in my experience, what a diverging eye causes, I want to answer that question first, is when you have a diverging eye, what it causes from a partial standpoint is that it causes your shoulders and hips to tilt ipsilaterally, ipsilaterally. So, for example, uh, it doesn't matter which eye, whether it's my left eye or my right eye that is diverging. I will, if I'm right-handed, I will have a lower right shoulder and a lower right hip. So that's an ipsilateral tilt. So the eyes causes ipsilateral tilts in the frontal plane and can also call, cause ipsilateral rotations in the transverse plane. So right shoulder forward, right glute forward. So what all of that translates to are asymmetry of compressions on your spinal cord, which is then going to affect every joint in your body, yes, but also is going to compress the um, meniscus, the disc in between each vertebrae of your spinal cord. So in other words, you're not going to be fighting gravity efficiently. So if it was a genetic factor, what we would see is the inability to correct the diverging eye with that specific person. But in most cases, most cases than not, we're actually able to correct a diverging eye under five minutes. So I don't believe that there's a genetic factor. However, if there is a neurological dysfunction like uh, Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, or if a disease is starting to set in, or if the person's on drugs like antidepressants or whatnot, then what those uh, drugs do is that they block communication between the right brain and the left brain. So it comes down to the middle part of the brain, which is called the corpus callus, which basically links both hemispheres together. When there's a dysfunction in that segment of the brain, then we tend to see that there is a diverging eye. So it's all about brain communication, which can very easily be restored again in a healthy subject in under five minutes. So if I'm understanding this right, you've got one eye looking at, you know, whatever the, the, the degrees is that that one's seeing. The other one is off by a few degrees. So it's facing a slightly different way. So the brain thinks that both sides of the body are in equal, you know, places. The proprioception is, is, is bilateral. But the reality is because of the difference of these two lenses, technically, the perceived balance is actually incorrect and that's what gives you that imbalance in reality in space. Correct. And also keep in mind that one side of the brain is, is seeing, for example, if we take the example of looking at a pen, one side of the brain will be seeing the pen and the other eye is looking at the wall. So there's two different images in the brain that are going into the brain, but the brain likes precision. So is this the reality or is this the reality? So you can see how it's very easy to make errors in movement or errors in judgment or even reaction if you have conflicting information going into your brain from both of your eyes. So it will cause you to not react as quickly, to not react as well. It will skew your distances, but it also 
it also creates imbalances with the left side of your body and the right side of your body, as well as your anterior and posterior muscles. So in other words, your ability to fight gravity optimally is going to be compromised based on that reality. See, and that makes sense from a personal perspective, because I, prior to LASIK, I had a very poor vision in my right eye and almost perfect vision in my left. But I could see, unless it was, you know, like dusk and I was starting to drive, I could see. So obviously my left eye was giving me probably 70, 80% of my vision and the right eye was probably just giving me that other lens, but I was definitely not getting a 50-50 input to my brain. And your body was probably, this is unconscious, right? And your body was probably adapting to this without you even realizing it. Now, here's the thing, is if you live with... um, a diverging eye and you're never really aware of it. And I'm sure your wife will, will agree with me when I say that in school, they just don't look at, they're more concerned with binocular vision. But here's the thing, if you have a diverging eye in that instance, you know, when you get tired or when you have a, a shot of whiskey or one too many shots of tequila or whatnot, you'll, you'll, you know, people will say to you, I see double. Well, that's the extension of that reality. But in school, in optometry school, what they're concerned with is binocular vision. When you have a diverging eye, you become momentarily, depending on the time of day, of day, monocular. So you lose your binocular vision, you become monocular, and then you regain it in the morning and so on and so forth. But you're constantly readjusting your posture. And a very easy test way to do this, I work with the Bomberg test and the Fukuda test, which are basically neurological tests. Just bring your feet together, extend your arms, point your fingers like a gun and close your eyes and see if you deviate to one side. If there's a deviation, more likely than not, the deviation will be on the side of the diverging eye. Uh, And uh, that deviation is a direct correlation between the imbalances in your eye muscles, which are now creating imbalances in your posture. And what that is actually doing is when you close your eyes, your muscle proprioception, that muscle memory is actually telling your body, hey, take a right or take a left. And that is costing energy. That's costing energy. So at the end of the day, the symptoms that one would feel, there are many symptoms, but just to give you an example, would be exhaustion in the second part of the day or lower back pain or shoulder pain or hip pain or knee pain in the second part of the day because you've compensated so much throughout the day that as you start to get tired, you fight gravity poorly, your joints start to take the slack and the pain uh, starts to be felt in the second part of the day. So you mentioned about being able to remedy it, you know, with a lot of people within five minutes. Talk to me about what those exercises look like. And then how were you able to take this work and help the law enforcement community? So what we we realized with a diverging eye and an imbalance with the eye is that I think we'd all agree that all homo sapiens on earth, uh, what makes us human is that we walk on our feet and we're um, two-legged creatures and we must balance our entire body weight on our feet. And the problem is that there are some studies out there that confirm that the pressure on your foot can actually affect the movement of your eyes. And this was something that I had started noticing really early on in my career 
um, because there's a there's a, a little cardboard that you can buy that's called the Lang test. Where basically, uh, it's like a really expensive cardboard that optometrists use. Your, your wife probably knows what this is. And uh, you basically, it kind of looks like this. You kind of take a look here, and it's going to show you like these 3D images. And someone who is not binocular, who has strabismus, will not be able to see any of the images. So what I had started noticing is that very often. I would take this cardboard and I, you know, ask, hey, what do you see? And they'd be like, oh, I see nothing. I just see dots, black dots. I was like, okay. I would correct the foot and we work with therapeutic uh, insoles. I would uh, correct the foot and I'll talk about the insoles in a second. So in other words, I would address their foot posture first. And then I would take the cardboard and say to them, hey, what do you see? And I'm talking about 35 seconds. And they, some would say, wow, oh yeah, I see a star popping out. I see a car and others would take a little longer, but there was an effect on their vision. So for years, I couldn't understand. I couldn't explain what was going on until the specific study came out, I believe in 2016, that explains the role of the skin, the mechanoreceptors in the skin that have actually an effect in the way that your brain and your eyes are moving. So, um, it became really clearly apparent to me that foot posture, foot posture adapts if there is an eye imbalance. And then the foot posture can then affect the eye and then the eye affects the foot and every, all of the joints that are located between your feet and your eyes are then going to be compromised and then you have a postural imbalance. So uh, one of the things that became really important was to correct the foot first. Why? Because we walk with our feet and then correct the uh, diverging eye. Uh, as quickly as possible. And again, with a healthy individual, those corrections are happening at the speed of light. When I say the speed of light, it's 114 meters per second. That is the speed of uh, the nervous system. So when I think of my community, law enforcement, fire, etc., one observation I've made as a as an athlete and, and more recently someone who's really leaned towards being barefoot as much as I can when I'm when I'm working out. Um, we need a certain type of footwear fires, for example, that have to be, you know, sturdy. They just have to be. We're stepping on broken glass and all kinds of things. We're in extreme heat. But that is very rare in the modern fire service for us to actually be fighting fire. The rest of the time, we're normally responding to EMS calls and other kind of services of duty. And the same with law enforcement. They're not in, you know, a, a war zone. They're usually on the streets. And if anything, they're in a foot pursuit. And you look at the shoes or boots that have been given to those communities, they're incredibly high-heeled, thick, heavy, unforgiving. Um, and I've said for a while now, this this is undoubtedly one of the issues that we're seeing with our posture and our you know, overall health. I've had podiatrists on here that have said the same thing. What have you observed with the footwear of some of these law enforcement communities that you're working with and that impact on their posture and therefore their shooting as well? Well, yeah. So, I mean, listen, uh, depending on the job that, that one has, footwear is essential and, and critical. So uh, I like to develop coping mechanisms, especially with uh, law enforcement. And, and the solution for that was really quite simple, is to make sure that their posture is as optimized as it could be with the type of wear that they need to wear that the job requires uh, by correcting their foot posture and wearing those corrections in their shoes. So that was a really quick and efficient solution uh, to be able to um, uh, apply immediately to help them correct those imbalances. It was my understanding that just even wearing their gear uh, on the street is anywhere between 30 to 35 additional pounds 
of, of additional weight just on your body uh, that you're basically constantly um, uh, dealing with. So uh, I like to, to work again with, with coping mechanisms and finding solutions, uh, provide solutions for, for law enforcement. But some of the stuff that most of the, the, the most critical components that we were looking to uh, make or the correlations was through posture correction, could we have an impact on blood pressure? Because we do know that stress and cortisol is huge for law enforcement. They have actually some of the um, uh, most uh, stressful jobs, uh, I want to say, in, in the world. Uh, you're putting your life at risk for, um, for on, 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 a, on a daily basis. So that really is stressful. So stress, uh, blood pressure, which has a direct correlation with stress, um, grip strength, which goes back to the, um, uh, the um, activity of the shoulder joint or how well that joint is, is uh, active and uh, shooting accuracy. And what we found is we actually tested uh, 13 subjects. And what we found with all 13, and some of them were, were on heart rate medication, or I should say blood pressure medication, what we found is they all had up to a certain extent an improvement with all three factors with posture correction. So what we did was really quite simple is, is we simply, and, and we have all of the graphs to demonstrate it, uh, we basically uh, corrected the foot, reassessed all three parameters, and then corrected the foot and the eye, and then reassessed all three parameters to see if there was an improvement. So again, out of 13 subjects, we had 13 positive outcomes. And we measured it with what I call the circle of health. And the circle of health is kind of like this pie that is divided into different segments that, um, that shows the imbalances, whether they be rigidity or asymmetry or, or uh, instability or vestibular. It's, it, can even start, it can even record if there is a jaw problem or a cerebellum issue or blood pressure. And we basically looked at the peaks. The computer just calculates these peaks and shows you visually uh, how these imbalances are being shown on the graph. So the further away you go from the bull's eye, the more imbalanced you are. And the closer you are to the bull's eyes, uh, the, the healthier uh, one would be. And we correlated the, the graph with their foot posture, with their eye movements, with blood pressure, shooting accuracy, uh, as well as grip strength and um, uh, foot and eye correction. So talk to me again, you, you, we kind of unpacked the, the eyes a little bit. Um, as I mentioned, I, I notice such a big difference when I'm barefoot and I don't, I am far from imbalance right now, but I, I feel the disconnect when wearing shoes working out, for example. So with, with the foot correction, what are the, the elements that you can do, you know, with or without shoes that are going to add to the benefit you've already talked um, about the eyes? Yeah, so we're talking about just overall wellness, global wellness, um, never mind performance, but, you know, let's just say wellness and, you know, and, and everything else that follows that uh, statement. The fastest way for anyone to improve their wellness is to correct their foot posture. And I would add to that to stop clenching their teeth. Uh, and, and the reason being uh, is because the same mechanoreceptors, mechanoreceptors, which are those sensory receptors that are located in our skin, 
You'll find it throughout our entire body. Keep in mind, this, the skin is 2,000 square meter of, of surface. Uh, the mechanoreceptors in the skin of the foot are much more primed in your brain than the ones on your forearm, for example. And they give very precise information to your nervous system in regards to your weight-bearing surfaces, which affects your balance, so your sagittal plane which has an effect on your vestibular system, which then affects your cerebellum, which affects your back muscles. So uh, by what we wanted to know is what type of mechanoreceptor responds to what? And we know that some of those mechanoreceptors respond to pressure, but we also know that some of them respond to frequency. So what we did is we said, okay, well, how can we, you know, how much pressure and how much frequency is going to get us the most results as far as um, having an effect on posture? And that's where uh, different scientists uh, actually worked with that under, under my guidance. And what we came about was to find out that uh, anything that is above three millimeters of threshold of height actually inhibits the sensory message that is being sent to the nervous system. This is why uh, if we compare it to arch supports, for example, what will end up happening is that the muscles start becoming weaker and weaker and weaker over time because that sensory stimulation is not, no longer being processed by the brain. Uh, those sensory receptors kind of go numb. So they start stop being active. Think of a cast on your arm. When you remove the cast, the arm is really weak. Whereas some other uh, sensory receptors actually react to frequency. How much frequency was uh, the million dollar question? It actually turns out to be 90 hertz of frequency, which has an effect on the, those uh, mechanoreceptors, which then give you an impression of, which really what they do is that they inhibit flexion and activate extension. So they have a direct impact on the sagittal plane, which again has an impact on the vestibular system, the cerebellum. The end result is at 114 meters per second, you have posture correction that's happening right there. So um, with law enforcement and, and with uh, Massachusetts was, was basically about taking that, that science and, and just seeing, you know, with, with the profession that requires the most precision shooting accuracy, can we, and some of these guys, you know, are, were like, are, are awesome at shooting. I mean, I think we had a, we even had a, a, we have a sniper in there, a SWAT team. Uh, I mean, their shooting is, is, is spectacular. Um, they don't need correction. <laughs> but even with that, we were able to improve their, their shooting accuracy. So it goes to show that um, regardless of where you are on the spectrum, the question, now we beg the question is how much better can you be? Can we improve where you're at right now? And if you have symptoms already, whether they be of pain or stress or, or whatnot or chronic injury, uh, it's all about being able to address those, um, those symptoms uh, through a global approach so that we can actually treat the cause instead of managing symptoms. Well, you talked as well about the jaw and I've had TMJ for a long time. I had my jaw dislocated twice within about two weeks of each other doing martial arts. And ever since then, my bite has not been, you know, when I, when I open my jaw and close it again, it kind of kicks off to, to one side before it closes. Um, and so I also have clenching at night. I know I do. So talk to me about how the, the alignment of the jaw factors into these other um, elements that you've already been discussing. Yeah, the thing with the jaw is that it's, it's really, really close to your brainstem. 
<laughs> it's much closer to your brainstem than the foot would be, for example. Uh, the eyes are really close to the brainstem as well. That's why we can get really, really quick results when we're just doing eye exercises without foot correction. Uh, but the thing with the jaw is that there's, again, it's multifactorial, right? There are three components that could create an imbalance. The first component is your joint, but the position of the joint depends on your teeth and on your tongue posture. So how are you swallowing your saliva? Where is your tongue positioned when you are listening to me throughout this podcast, for example, sitting in your car or when you're working in front of the computer, where's your tongue? And um, do you have an asymmetry in your muscles, your masseter, your temporalis, mediolateral pterygoid. When you open your mouth, you hear cracking or clicking. If you do, that means that your meniscus is being compromised. So all of those different systems have sent feedback, again, without you being aware of it, to your nervous system, to your brainstem. And what the brain loves to know, especially when we sleep, is where your lower jaw is in relation to your upper jaw. And what it tries to do in paradoxal sleep, and this is why we clench our teeth when we sleep, which is normal, is that it tends to reposition the jaw in its physiological position. But if there's an imbalance already that exists in that entire segment, which I just described before, then you'll end up waking up with pain in the morning. So what can be done? If you have a missing tooth, you need to address it. If you have more wear and tear on one side in comparison to the other, it needs to be addressed. Um, if you have a, and, and, and actually, if you address your tongue posture and your teeth, you'll have an immediate impact on the joint. So um, the solution really is to take care of your teeth as best as you can, as much as you can. Keep in mind that clenching is normal and physiological during paradoxal sleep. What's not normal is to wake up with pain. And what's not normal is bruxism, which includes clenching your teeth and grinding them together. That is the attempt of the nervous system to try to align the jaw, the head, on the shoulders when you are restoring your body again during paradoxal sleep. So um, the jaw is a huge component, but what we found is when we correct the foot and the eye, we actually have an effect on the activity of the muscles, masseter, um, um, uh, mediolateral pterygoid, and, uh, and um, the temporalis. We have an effect on the, the activity of those muscles through foot and eye correction. So then it just makes sense to address, to correct the foot and the eyes, have an effect on posture, because we're changing the center of gravity, the sagittal plane, and then reassess the jaw to see if there's an improvement there. But it, it definitely is a sensory receptor. I call it a sensory receptor that needs to be taken into account, just like scars, if we're not getting the results or seeking or getting the results that we're seeking in, in a session. So it is a component. It's important that therapists realize this. None of them do. This, is, this sphere here is reserved to denti dentistry, period. Uh, no one's really looking at it. Charles really was one of the only ones that I spoke to again at the time uh, who was actually releasing the jaw. But uh, in order to have a, the, the most effect on the jaw, you would need to address all of those components simultaneously and at once for an extended period of time. And this is when we talk about this is a, when we talk about treating the cause so that you can get long term results. Because if you're treating the cause, you no longer need to manage your pain. 
So when I'm hearing all this, obviously a lot of these are coming up as we progress through maturity. And listening to you in, in other in other conversations, and we spoke a few weeks ago, you know, in person, with so many conversations, if we reverse engineer back to, you know, birth, we can start identifying some of the mistakes that we're making as we're, you know, raising our children that hopefully would set that generation up much better for mental and physical health. So starting, you know, newborn, what are some of the mistakes that we're making in the Western world and what should we be doing instead to align all these elements that you're talking about? We need to let our children move freely as much as possible. But before that, we need to make sure that women's pelvises are aligned. So in other words, if you're pregnant right now, or if you're thinking of getting pregnant, your posture should be aligned before you even get pregnant. So true prevention starts with the parents. Both should be aligned, quite frankly, because the alignment of posture has a direct impact on the frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe is uh, basically the part of the brain that re regulates all of those um, different functions, uh, working memory, executive control, uh, and there's a, a dopamine embedded sensory receptors, it's responsible for motor output um, and, and whatnot. But it is the part of the brain that is developed as we grow that gives us, um, I don't want to say consciousness, but um, empathy. Uh, so those, uh, the parents should, their, their posture should be addressed first. Woman's pelvis should be aligned so that she can have a really quick and natural birth. The birthing that happens with the child, the fact that the baby just moves the head out of the canal gives a trigger to the nervous system, the baby's nervous system that lets their nervous system know that they're no longer in the womb. So movement activates the genes. Baby's head comes out naturally. Mother just gave birth under six hours, which is normal. There's no massive tear. Everything is beautiful. Uh, and then we need to let our babies move. And this starts with, of course, breastfeeding. Using that entire segment, we don't have teeth when we are born, the baby cannot control, has very, very poor muscle tone because those connections in the brain have not yet happened. What is going to solidify those connections, what is going to myelinate those neurons is movement. Uh, and very quickly, you'll see your baby's head after a month and a half will start lifting their head because those neck muscles are getting activated and they are slowly, slowly, slowly starting to build those connections to the greater part of the brain so that those different lobes can start developing fully, including the frontal lobe that literally grows out of the sensory cortex through movement and sensory stimulation. So the biggest mistake that we can do, and not a lot of parents know this, is to let our kids move and to breastfeed as long as you can. And I know it's a challenge in the States because women can only take three months off uh, is what I was um what I was told in comparison to Canada, where we still have 12 months, but, uh, but that really is, uh, that really is the best remedy for our children. Now, what about all of this technology that's coming about and the fact that, um, you know, obviously their, their posture and their brain is being affected. It's, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem because it's oversaturating their dopamine production. And the moment that dopamine is affected, brain development is going to be affected as well. So, yeah, so um, preventing any type of, of electrical device would be another uh, advice that I would give. M my children don't, don't touch any of these devices unless 
when I travel to have uh, to be able to sit to sit in the plane, but we make a I make a point to basically just bring um, you know uh, drawing things and anything to have them use their fingers and then develop their senses as much as possible. But you know sometimes you, you do have to pull out an iPad and that's okay as long as it's not all the time. Now, what about the uh, the impact of cesarean section? It seems like especially here in the U.S. that has become almost like a fast food element when it comes to childbirth. So, you know, you're getting people scheduling their birth on this day because it's convenient for the physician or the parents. And you start getting into the whole gut biome discussion and, and realizing all the, the downsides of not having a vaginal birth, if it's possible. I get that sometimes CSEC is, is what's needed. What is the impact right. of that on your work? Well, it's going to have an impact. Well, for the woman, it's going to have an impact on their posture because there's going to be a pathological, there may be a pathological scar, right, uh, which would need to be addressed. Um, if she requested it, that's again, I mean, um, this is where the education part of the of the of the whole uh, process is extremely important because I mean, I want to believe that every, every woman out there that, that wants to be a mother wants the best for their child. And if you understand that what's best for your child is to have a natural birth so that you can prime their nervous system as much as possible, give them the best chances right at the beginning of life, I'm pretty sure that most women would choose to go through the process. I could be wrong, but um, uh, most women would choose that option for their babies. Now, again, if it's a medical emergency, that's a different uh, topic altogether. Um, but treating the scar for the woman will be extremely important. And from the moment that the child is born through cesarean, you are inhibiting that first reflex that the baby needs that triggers the nervous system which is referred to as primitive reflexes. Primitive reflexes must be activated and integrated in babies, fully integrated by the age of 12 years old. And what you might end up seeing is what I refer to as a postural child. This is a child that has issues with uh, stability, with holding their pen, with language. They may have issues even with the development of their teeth, with their arch. Um, they might be hyperactive. I mean, the extreme, uh, the extension of that imbalance is autism and everything in between. Uh, so um, I'm not saying that not giving birth naturally causes autism. That's not what I'm implying. I'm just saying that you want to give your baby as much chances as possible to uh, work on their nervous system or to optimize it anyways. So I heard you discussing one of your talks about um, the, the, the kind of push to get the babies to walk too soon. I remember when my little boy was born, um, his mother was freaking out because so-and-so's baby was doing X at this point. And I turned to her and I said, look, have you ever seen an 18-year-old crawling? She's like, no. I said, exactly. They they are gonna walk when they walk, and I'm not looking to break any world records. He will he will do you know meet these stages when he's ready. And I had the what to expect books, so I could you know was keeping an eye on they should be able to do X by now, and obviously make sure there wasn't some sort of developmental issue. So talk to me about um, walking and also footwear in these very very young boys and girls. Well, I want to talk about crawling first. I mean, most parents are under the impression that when uh, babies walks at eight months old, that they have, uh, you know, I've, I've heard it like, oh, you're so smart. You walked at eight months old. Uh, what actually ends up happening is that um, the nervous system does not have enough time to develop in specific segments. 
Uh, there needs to be enough stimulation in the lower part of the brain, which is the medulla. Then you want to go into the pons, enough stimulation there. Then you want to go into the midbrain, a lot of stimulation there. And that's where crawling, cross crawl actually happens. And then you want to create those myelinations that are going to go all the way up to your brain and help you form your frontal lobe. That is crucial. And what creates those connections between the right side of the body and the left side of the body is control lateral crawling. But before that, the children go through ipsilateral crawling, which they must go through to start developing their hand-eye coordination. So here we are again talking about that hand-eye coordination, which is absolutely essential. It's, it helps uh, babies develop their vestibular system, their sense of balance, their sensory system. There is a direct correlation with the hand and the mouth. So um, their language skills are also going to be affected. Problem solving, uh, small motor growth. In order to have gross motor skills, you need to become really, really good afterwards. At You need to uh, gross motor skills, which is complete control, you need to start developing the fine motor skills. So all of that is going to be affected if um, all of that is going to be affected if we basically uh, prevent uh, movement up to a certain extent and have and have that that force our children to way too early instead of let, letting them crawl and develop their their body and their postural strategies in the normal um, uh, in the um, normal amount of time that is required normally um, sorry about that in the normal amount of time that is required normally uh, in order to to uh, integrate those reflexes and what about footwear so when they are at the point where they should be walking talk to me about the importance of, of barefoot versus shoes yeah, so barefoot is uh, is extremely important because um, the the actual bones of a baby's foot are not fully fully formed up to the age of thirteen years old. So um, again, it's about forming and developing coping mechanisms and different strategies to be able to work with what we have. So. What's the challenge? Our children go into kindergarten and then uh, in kindergarten, they're going to be asked to put shoes on. So you have a choice. You can uh, either find a shoe that uh, basically is really, really flexible. And when I say flexible, I'm talking about the extreme here. I'm talking about taking the shoe and rolling it up like a sponge. Uh, it's made out of leather and they're, yes, they are very costly and children grow very, very quickly. So uh, they would have an essence to wear a shoe that feels like they have no shoes on, if that is the situation. And the rest of the time to have barefoot walking as, um, as much as possible when, uh, when they're at home, different types of, of, of exercises so that you can allow that arch and those bones to fuse as naturally as, naturally as possible. Um, keep in mind again when you put when you put shoes on on a child, it's like putting a, a cast on their foot or putting their foot into a coffin. You're preventing those toes from forming. You're squishing the toes. You're preventing the born, the, the bones from forming optimally. And uh, in essence, you're going to have a direct impact on the formation of their arch. Now, keep in mind that an arch is the is the is the extension of muscle tone and muscle tone is directly linked to the integration of primitive reflexes. 
So up to the age of 13 years old till children start forming all 26 bones that are needed in the foot, uh, we need to be really, really careful about the types of shoes that our kids have to start to wear. I understand that some kids play sports and some shoes need to be tight, like skiing or hockey. If you're in Canada, like we do here, because we love like these uh, uh, winter sports, then that again, that's okay. The point is, is that most of the time and 90% of the time or 80% of the time, they should be in a context where the foot is developing naturally and they should not wear shoes that prevents the natural movement of the foot. So throwing a complete tangent at you just for a moment, this audience is listening. A lot of, a lot of people uh, experienced um, post-traumatic stress in the profession themselves. I've realized as I've gone through the kind of genesis of this, this podcast that a lot of trauma is actually early as well. But one of the things that seems to work is EMDR. So I think if I've got the term right, it's contralateral stimulation as they're talking through and, and you're switching from left and right sides of the brain. What is your exposure, if any, to that? And, and then in contrary to that, what, are, what is the kind of uh, neuro element to the body not being able to pro process trauma that EMDR seems to be helping with moving that memory from the front to the back? Yeah, so what EMDR is doing, uh, in other words, is that through eye movements, it is helping you uh, connect your frontal lobe to your limbic system. So to comprehend and understand whatever trauma you have gone through, because when we are in a state of fear, what ends up happening is that the frontal lobe shuts down and the uh, primitive brain kicks in so that you can run and survive and flee. So in moments of stress or trauma, um, we have a shutdown of the frontal lobe and through eye movements, this type of therapy, which I love, by the way, very complimentary, this type of therapy will help you reconnect those different brain parts. Again, remember, what we do is about connecting the different brain parts together, hence the frontal lobe to the limbic system, along with both sides of the body. And very often, uh, very often what is, in, what is, uh, what is done um, is that the, both sides of the body are touched at the same time because you do want to connect the right brain to the left brain, right brain being sympathetic, left brain being parasympathetic, and again, gaining that control. The more control you have of your uh, body, uh, the more, the better you will be able to control your emotions. And then, you know, talking about kids, because we did, we did just finished that segment. If a child cannot feel their body, they will not be able to understand emotions. And this holds true also for adults. So back to the kids then. Thank you for that, by the way. Um, as we progress through, we're talking about devices. You're seeing these horrendous postures of these young boys and girls, shoulders all pulled forward, you know, the, the anterior pelvic tilt, the, the pronation of the feet as you follow them, you know, in a shopping mall and they're just scuffling down. You have a term postural recalibration. How do we get someone whose body has been broken down through repetitive use as well and through muscle imbalance to start coming back to where they should have been had they had this healthy upbringing that we discussed prior? You know, um, it's never too late to start. Someone who's been unhealthy all their lives, uh, it's never too late for them to make the decision to start eating right and, and to start training. That's the beauty of the human body. We're made, we're survivors. We are made to survive and procreate and, um, and live as long as we can. So um, there's really no 
there's really no limit. I've worked with uh, Parkinson's disease stage four. I've worked with different neurological conditions, including Alzheimer's disease. I've worked with autistic kids. I've worked with regular kids. I've worked with parents. I've worked with athletes, uh, police officers. There's, we're, we're all human. And the beauty of this is as long as we're uh, dealing with someone that has a brain, lungs, heart, nervous system, humans, you can expect some kind of improvement, improvement up to a certain extent. Now, the level of, of improvement varies because we all have different brains and we all have different lifestyles and nervous system. But again, it's never too late to start. And I say this because we are all decaying by the minute. I don't mean to be morbid, but we are all aging by the minute. And it's about how well we age. So if we can give ourselves in this day and age with everything that's, you know, happening in the world, um, as much a possibility to age gracefully and to age well. And really, that was one of the questions with uh, one of the topics with George and Jason is, is, you know, all of those police officers are retiring and they are wrecked at the end of their career. Same for athletes. And actually, athletes are wrecked way before police officers, uh, way younger is what I mean. But the point is, is that if you're at the point where you're about to retire and your entire body is killing you, you're not going to be able to appreciate your life. So what, um, and certainly your retirement. So what I'm proposing is a very simple method. Really, it takes under five minutes for, for anyone that does this type of training. We teach it online. We teach it in person. The goal is to spread the awareness, to let people know that there are other ways out there that uh, can have a, a great impact on your health and your well-being and your wellness and to basically apply these concepts on a daily basis now it doesn't take very much time it's not very much it's not time costly at all to perform those exercises but the trick is is that you need to repeat them for a total of 10,000 hours what is 10,000 hours? It's the equivalent of six weeks. Why six weeks? Why 10,000 hours? Because that's how much time your nervous system needs in order to form a new neural connection. Um, so uh, performing those exercises, which are going to cost you no more than, I want to say, three minutes per day, every day for six weeks, with the foot correction, the foot correction is absolutely important because it counters the effect of the shoes that you wear. This is what we're doing with uh, with the state of Massachusetts. We're basically with Massachusetts State Police is that we're putting the insoles in their shoes. We're putting them in their boots uh, so that they can counter the effect of the rigidity of the booth. Um, and then, you know, it's all about neuroplasticity, those 10,000 hours, slowly, slowly, the more you wear the insoles, the more you do the eye exercises, the more you start to reverse the process, the pathological, the, the poor posture that you've developed throughout the years starts to regress. And there's no age for that. Of course, it goes without saying that the younger you are, the faster it goes. Absolutely. That's why prevention starts with the kids. Parents need to be aware of this as soon as possible. And if, uh, and, if, uh, and if you'd like to just help yourself and see a difference in, in your own life and your wellness, then it really is never too late to start. So where can people find the information and, and what are the online tools that you have available? Yeah, so posturepro.co is our main website, and we serve uh, really uh, three purposes. We either give online certification or in-person certification, and because I love what I do and, and my mission really is to help as many people as possible, I do offer in-person consultations when I travel or I have a clinic here in Montreal or online consultations. Posturepro.co, at PosturePro on Facebook and Instagram, 
It's posture underscore pro for Twitter. And uh, you'll find me on all of the uh, social platforms um, if, uh, if need be. And you've got some of the, the kind of examples of some of the exercises that you've done in, in some of the talks that you've put out there on YouTube. So kind of just give people the overview of what the, the corrections look like as far as the eyes and also um, the, you know, what the, the, the insoles look like as far as the shoes as well. Because, I mean, you can go to a, a regular shoe store and buy an insole. I'm assuming that's not the same kind of, you know, prosthesis that you're putting in these officers' shoes, for example. Yeah, so uh, it's really important to understand the difference. The height of the insole, which means that anything that has somewhat of a tiny arch support is going to have a reverse myotactic reflex. It's going to affect your gait. And every single shoe out there, running shoes, all of them, uh, have already a default insert in the shoe. So they might look really, really good. They might be really, really cool. And, you know, you might love the shoes, but they might might actually be contributing to your future knee or hip or back injury. So uh, you need to take those inserts out. The way that our products differ, we call them pro, uh, postural insoles, postural insoles, because they work on posture through the sensory receptors in the skin. We will never go above three millimeters. And we use those wedges in different parts of the foot to create different postural uh, different postural requirements. So for example, if you have rounded shoulders or an anterior pelvic tilt, or if you're looking for a general full body activation, blood flow, increased blood flow to the lymphatic, lymphatic system, or just uh, overall posture correction for pain, we've created different models that will fit really anyone's budget. And the main difference is that they are sensory in nature. They don't atrophy those mechanoreceptors, they stimulate them. So in other words, we're creating better proprioception to the nervous system. Uh, and you can find those products on shop.posturepro.co and the education is on education.posturepro.co where you'll find all of the information also if you're looking for uh, online consultation or in-clinic uh, visits here in Montreal or when, uh, when I'm traveling. And then the eye exercises, because I mean, you mentioned how, how short of a time this therapy really takes. So just kind of give me an overview of what they look like. Yeah, so uh, the eye exercises are really simple. I, I love to give information for free on my YouTube channel. So you can actually do all of that, you know, for free and in, in your own time. Uh, what they entail really is quite simple. The one of the quickest way to sense uh, to feel the difference is what I would recommend is let's say you have, I don't know, um, lower back pain or shoulder pain, uh, assess your pain, your, your range level first. So either, you know, bring your shoulder up and feel where your range of motion is and where that tightness uh, begins. Uh, give enough to it. This always helps to do that. And then uh, to perform the eye exercises, I always recommend using your dominant index, which is basically if I'm right-handed, I'll use my right index. And I like to draw a vertical line on the index. Now, what's really important is to take that index finger, position it right in front of your eyes. So you don't want it to be too low or too high. You want both of your eyes to focus on that target. And uh, what you'll do is you'll bring the finger a little closer and see if, um, if, uh, if the, the finger, if the line starts to double up or not. And you'll start doing really clockwise circles for approximately anywhere to 30 to 45 seconds or until you feel that your eyes are working out. And this is what you'll repeat three times a day, morning, afternoon, and nighttime. And once you've done that exercise, 30 to 45 seconds, properly and slowly reassess your pain. See if there's a difference. If the pain has diminished, and simply what that means is that your eyes are contributing to the imbalance. You'll need to continue doing those eye exercises. However, remember that an eye imbalance 
causes of foot imbalance, always. So if you really want to address the problem, it's important that, uh, same with the jaw, the problems are always multifactorial. You need to address all of the sensory receptors, including the jaw, together at once. But what's really, really nice is to know what gives, them, what gives you the most effect, especially when we're talking about pain that you may be experiencing. So just circling around to the footwear one more time before we move to some closing questions. Um, with there not really being a need for an old school military style boot in law enforcement, in EMS, in, in most of firefighting, would there be a positive benefit not only on foot health, but overall posture and pain reduction if a more minimalist style shoe was used by first responders? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, that's not, uh, I think that the shoe wear is, is critical for, uh, for law enforcement. Um, if there's a way to go around that and create a more comfortable shoe for keeping in mind that you're actually working with, with the nervous system and, and, and the reaction that the officers might have, uh, I, I would tend to agree with you, um, 100%. But there's also, um, there's also, and, and perhaps I'll, I'll announce this here, there's also, um, uh, an online course that I teamed up with, with Jason, uh, to offer for officer and stress uh, resilience and health, where we cover all of those different topics, um, and talk really about the neuroscience behind, um, how neuroscience can actually benefit law enforcement and officers' activities uh, from uh, body alignment, uh, increasing strength, uh, uh, faulty mechanics, uh, seating, the, mostly the seated jobs because a lot of police officers are seated and that's going to create imbalances in, in, in the body and, and, and whatnot and shooting accuracy. And all of that information, again, is on, is on our website. And this is uh, going to be an online course that launches uh, November 1st, where we give a lot of, we're going to be giving a lot of additional tips but gear it specifically to to law enforcer and first uh, responders. Beautiful. Well, we we touched on the MDR, but just while I'm, I'm thinking about it, what about the correlation between posture and mental health? Have you found any any kind of cross pollination there? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is uh, actually a lot of studies out there that uh, you know, thank God, have are, are coming up with the with this information uh, as well. The thing is, is that it. it it all comes down to how well you're managing your stress. That's really what it comes down to. And that comes down directly to your vagal tone. Now, here's the thing. If you have poor vagal tone activity, you're not going to be managing your stress well. You're going to have high cortisol, and that's going to affect your quality of life. So um, at the end of the day, if you are unable to properly manage that stress, and then you're not going to be able to go about and do your, um, your, your daily activities or even your, your job activities, which are required specifically in, in, in law enforcement. There's uh, actually a, a few studies that talk about the different uh, connections between um, uh, uh, stress and just being able to have cognitive function and perform cognitive tasks. But what we do know is that when we have increased cortisol, uh, it's going to affect your sleep. It's going to affect your digestion. It's going to affect your ability to do, to digest and absorb uh, your protein. Uh, it's going to affect uh, your ability to even um, process sugar or get rid of sugar. Uh, so really, there's a, there's a myriad of different functions that are going to be affected if, if you're unable to manage that stress. So what I'm proposing is that through posture correction, we can actually help you better manage that stress, which in turn has a direct effect 
on the production of cortisol and the stress hormone, which affects everything. Beautiful. I saw one video that you put up was, I think it was five ways to deregulate the nervous system. It sounded like the Wim Hof breathing was one of them, which I've had Wim on the show. Kind of walk me through that one and then the other four elements that will allow a responder to hopefully kind of get out of that fight and flight sympathetic system and, and back into parasympathetic. Well, you know, uh, we know that the parasympathetic system can be trained right? Uh, this is exactly what Winhoff is doing. I mean, he's just, he's actually found a way to tap into that parasympathetic system. But from an evolutionary perspective, and how when you look at the way that the nervous system develops, the vagal tone really has two branches. Branches. There is one that exists pre-birth in the womb, and then there's another one that starts to form through sensory movement and 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 st the sensory stimulation, which is kind of like the the newer vagal system. Now uh, you can compare that and see that with uh, individuals that have uh, what I refer to as the freeze response. The freeze response is you know when you just do a, a sound and someone like <gasps> they kind of freeze and like they have all these endorphins that pass in there and they might even pass out. Well, in some individuals that response is actually still active. So what Winhoff is doing is that through breathing, right, we know that the, some branches of the parasympathetic system are connected to the inferior lobes of, of our lungs. Through breathing, he's actually tapping into that system. In other words, what he's doing is he's activating his primitive brain. He's myelinating those connections to it. So um, breathing definitely is, uh, is one way that you can do that. But there's also different ways. You know that doing eye exercises is also a great way to be able to address that sympathetic stress um, and doing a foot correction. Uh, I'm trying to remember which video you're referring to because I'm like, I'm so many uh, different one of them, uh, different videos, but uh, which one are you referring to on, on the YouTube channel uh, exactly? Okay, so I think it, one was the Wim Hof breath. I think it started actually with cold immersion. So that was the first one again. Yeah. Obviously, you know, Wim is bigger than that. Then you talked about breath and then I, I'm trying to remember what the other ones were now. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm, I'm like trying to quickly try. I'm like, should I go on my YouTube channel? But I don't want everything to to kind of like start playing. But you know what? All of those different methods do is that they force you to basically they force you to control your body. So the moment that you force yourself to control your body, that's happening through your frontal lobe. So when you go in the cold, you you want to move your muscles, but you're going to kind of like control that initial reaction that you want to have to just run and scream. And, and you're, so those connections, that's frontal lobe connection that activates the limbic system. One of the roles of the frontal lobe is to inhibit the limbic system. So in other words, you get better control of your emotions. So um, what I'll do is I'll probably forward, um, you know, have uh, the listeners go to uh, to the our YouTube channel and see if we can find that video uh, to see the different methods uh, for controlling or uh, definitely uh, different ways to um, to activate your vagal tone. Yeah, I think another one was meditation. So that was three of them: breath work, cold emotion, and meditation. I forget the other two. All of which, again, frontal lobe activity. Beautiful. All right. Well, I would love to throw some closing questions at you before I let you go. That's okay. Talk to me. Beautiful. So the first one, is there or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. 
Well, uh, you know, most of the books that I read are books that, that are geared are, are towards uh, neuroscience. So uh, functional, what, what was it here? Uh, neurological organization. I have it right here. It's actually, I'm reading it right now as a recap. Neurological organization is one of my uh, favorite books. Um, I rarely read for entertainment. I should uh, read a little bit more, but that would be one of the books that really, really explains how... Um, um, how can I say how the neurological system develops in, in humans to begin with and why it's so important to look at that first uh, before doing anything else. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that would be a great one to read just because when we spoke a few weeks ago, I was trying to process what you were telling me because it was all so new. So what about, are there any documentaries or films on this topic that people could watch as well? You know, a documentary, Babies. Have you seen it? I have not. Uh, so babies is, uh, these documenters that basically go around the world to see how babies develop throughout the world in the really rural uh, parts of the world to the really evolved and Western parts of the world and, uh, how basically our children's posture is, um, is not doing well. <laughs> and it's, it has a direct correlation uh, with movement. It goes back to movement. So that documentary is really, really nice to see. Beautiful. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, my God. Off the top of my head, I got you got me in a nice question here. Um, I can let you know later, later on by email if you'd like. Yeah, no, that'd be brilliant. Thank yeah. you. All right. Well, then the last question before I make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress yourself? I breathe. I really, I, uh, through breath work um, and just breathing. And one of the most important things also breathing allows me to mostly, I know it's going to sound cliche, accept the things that, that I can't change. So it gives me a different perspective and gives me that control that I'm that I'm looking for when I feel really tense, when I want, I want things. I, I'm one that likes for things to move perhaps too quickly. Uh, so uh, being able to just take that, that time and try to stay in the moment is something that's challenging for me. But, you know, it's a life's mission, I think, for a lot of people, too, as well. Absolutely. The, the monkey mind is strong in me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then for people listening, where are the best places to find Posture Pro online? I know you touched on it before. And then what about yourself? Do you have any you know, social media handles aside from that? Uh, yeah, I just opened uh, Instagram, uh, Annette Verpillot. Uh, Annette Verpillot on uh, Posture Pro is the only personal account I have. I don't, uh, I'm trying to find time to manage it because I don't want to fuse the two, but um yeah, so, so far, um, that's the only handle that I have. I do have a Facebook page, uh, which has the same handle, Annette.Verpillo. Brilliant. And you said that it was um, posturepro.co, not .com? Correct, .co. Okay, beautiful. Well, Annette, I want to say thank you so much. Again, I want to say thank you to George for connecting us. But, you know, this, our initial conversation, this one, I've learned so much myself. It's going to send me down a whole bunch of rabbit holes. It's getting me to reverse engineer my life yet again <laughs> and identify even more areas that I hopefully can find the nucleus of. But I truly appreciate you being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. Listen, thank you so much for, um, 
for uh, even your you're just you're so open-minded and i'm really really honored to have an opportunity to be on the show and i do want to thank again uh, uh, george ryan uh, jason shea actually for introducing me to george and george for uh, introducing me to you so thank you to all three of you uh you guys are making a great difference in the world so for people listening i hit stop we would kind of wrapped up the conversation and then we started talking again after and i wanted to make sure that we brought this in the conversation as well so my james gearing's observation the last two years has been that it's we had a captive audience such a great opportunity to educate people on nutrition and exercise and movement and posture and and sleep and mindfulness and all these things and sadly that was absolutely suppressed in the conversation of vaccines and masks and and lockdowns so a lot of us have seen how easily or how easy it was for some of these governments to get people to do quote unquote what they were told and you made a very interesting point again relating to posture and confidence and self-esteem and mental health so talk to me about your observations on that point uh well if we go back to to the brain and connecting those different lobes and those different brain parts um the working memory and the executive functions are all in the frontal lobe. Like I was saying before, the frontal lobe is a part of the brain that's going to give you your personality. Uh, so um, going back to all of the restrictions and, and, and COVID and whatnot to help people make the best decisions for themselves, uh, as opposed to uh, being brainwashed, but really for, for any type of brainwashing, uh, would be a, a, to have um, a great frontal lobe activation and activity. Now, in essence, having an imbalance with your body is a reflection of, of that frontal lobe because the frontal lobe does control tonic posture up to a certain extent. And we know that posture influences emotions uh, and the brain. So my reasoning was when, when we were chatting is if, if we were to correct the population's posture, uh, would we have better frontal lobe activity? Hence, in, in the discussion of COVID or, or whatnot, would we be able to help people make better decisions for their health, for themselves and for their lives through frontal lobe activity? I believe it could be done uh, as we were discussing, and I believe it could have an impact, a worldwide impact worldwide if everyone came on board and was just applying these simple concepts, even with their kids, just with their kids. Um, 30 years from now, we would probably have a huge impact on, on the world. If we had children that were had primitive reflexes that were integrated, if we had parents that were aware of what to look for and what to do, and of course, if we had a schooling system to help us uh, achieve these goals. Well, so my response to that when we were talking before was if I was to, if I was a cartoonist and was to caricature someone who would be meek and easily led, the posture would probably be very, very similar than a lot of the people that we see walking around today. And it's not to, to, to vindicate or, or be, you know, cruel towards people. But if you think about that kind of, forward shoulder carriage pronated slumped you know obese frame that does not scream self-confidence that does not scream independent thinking so again it resonates very deeply with me if we were going to empower rather than remove power from a population during a health crisis and empower them to 
to uh, you know to move to to strength train to work on their posture to sleep well and you had these more athletic more um, gymnastic frames that you see in some of our athletes around the world with the the I think the pretty universally accepted element of body language we would see a lot stronger independent humans that I think would not be easily duped and would be vouching for the things that make them um, make the the nucleus of their country healthy versus than turning to a, a government and saying we don't know what to do what should we do what should I take what should I put on my face where should I hide and that confidence I 100 percent uh, agree with you and that confidence is can be directly linked to our children's posture or to our posture Someone who has uh, confidence, who has good postural control, will have confidence, will display themselves in confidence, and uh, will also have good activity of their of their frontal lobe. A frontal lobe. This is where those dopamine reward systems are. If we are if we are fed constantly and we have no no goal oriented um, uh, purposes anymore, then we kind of kind of become zombies. And that's not, that's not the goal of humans, I don't believe. So hence, um, the importance of, of, getting, of, of getting this message, propelling this message forward, letting people know that they have, there is another way, there is a solution. We, we all have the choice to choose and refuse, but just know that uh, there are methods out there that can help you prime your child's uh, nervous system, prime your own ner- nervous system. And at the end of the day, your brain will thank you for it. Now, if you were a queen for a day and you could reinvent the way that schools were, whether it's, you know, the, the actual classroom itself, whether it's the physical education side, that what's being served in, in, in the cafeteria, what are some of the areas that you would change to promote the things that we've talked about today in our young boys and girls? Well, the first thing that I would do is I would create a system that helps support the children from uh, from a growing perspective. I would, uh, you know, children are just discovering their own emotions and how the, the the way that they react in in emotional situations without the comprehension. It goes back to even treating trauma without the comprehension comprehension of understanding what's happening to their body physically. So when a child gets upset, you have that adrenal rush. Uh, when they have fear, you know, the same thing. And you, you need to be able to, as an adult, to help them transition or understand what is happening. It's going to be hard for a child to understand that if their primitive brain is still very, very much active, if their sympathetic tone is extremely high, it'll be more challenging for an adult uh, to help the child and for the child to accept the help that is being offered to them. So if I could, in a magical world, if I had a magic wand and all the money in the world, uh, I would educate the parents first because it does begin with the parents. And then I would create a schooling system, a gift school, if you wish, a gift school where it allows the children to be able to uh, develop in, in complete acceptance of themselves and help them develop their brain as optimally as possible. And it really does start with the primitive brain. And movement, movement, of course, movement. I mean, how could, you know, that, for me, that all entails movement as well, because from that moment on, you're going to end up having symmetry and synchronicity between both brains as opposed to having an imbalance in the brain. So, yeah. 
So that brings us all the way back to a young 100-meter athlete who ultimately her parents were worried about her being worn out, who then ended up with bursitis. So now with all this work that you've gone through, a, a thing that just comes up naturally because of some of the people I talk to is what are we doing to our young athletes? I think especially in the U.S., there's this kind of um, elite performance element in high school and college that I've witnessed then destroys longevity. So they may be amazing in on the, you know, the baseball field at 18 years old, but now they're completely shot at 30 years old. So, you know, with that lens that you have now, what about our actual athletes? What should we be doing as a coach, as a, you know, as a, a parent of a, a school age child um, who maybe is passionate about sport? But I mean, here in, in America, you see a lot of uh, um, overuse in, in a single sport. So, so how do we create balance, allow that child to enjoy that sport without destroying them? Wow, I mean, the competition in the United States in comparison to um, to Canada is, is uh, you cannot compare. But I mean, I understand that there is huge stress because there is a financial aspect to it. Um, and, uh, you know, then there is fear of losing losing that financial aspect to it. But as far as um, as the athletes are concerned, if I when I go and, and work with a team, I'm really going all in from the perspective of what can I do to prevent injury with this athlete and not from a financial standpoint for, for the team or the college per se, but for the quality of life of the specific athlete uh, to help them reach their goal injury free and, um, and to be as happy as they can be. And uh, what I find is a lot of obstacles, starting with the feet, as you know, like for example, in, in basketball, there's, you know, they have, there's an entire system that is almost like a like a mafia of, of arch supports uh, where they're uh, extremely afraid to have these, you know, these ankle injuries. And, and I understand that. But, uh, you know, basing all of this from the perspective of the nervous system, I think, would would give uh, would give any team the winning edge that, that they're looking for. I, I don't I don't even think that they know that they don't know. Because uh, you shouldn't operate from fear. You should operate from the perspective of the, of the nervous system. And then once that's done, you're actually going to give the athlete, if you're creating these, if you're aligning posture, you're creating those connections to the frontal lobe, you're increasing their dopamine. And that whole reward system and the baseline dopamine that we're looking to raise is going to get raised through posture correction. So uh, we're, we're, you know, we're giving them so much protein to get stronger. We're training them like crazy. I understand that. But if they're not digesting their protein because their cortisol levels are too high, because they have a partial imbalance on top of that, they're not digesting it. <laughs> so uh, we're creating superstars in, in the era of social media. But at the end of the day, I mean, if we look at the stats and how miserable some of these athletes are once they've made it, I mean, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I, it's sad. I mean, I, I sympathize uh, the same way I would with, with any, any profession. It's, it's, it, you know, you should be able to retire happily and I'm not suggesting that no one does, but I'm really looking just at, at, at the majority. And I think that sports team need to get those, um, all of their athletes on board. Primitive reflexes need to be assessed, brain imbalances, partial correction, foot correction, eye correction, scars if need be, and then send them out in the field. You will be creating superhumans and super athletes without the drugs.